Welcome into episode number 49 of Nurturing Financial Freedom. I am John Jack Gay. I'm joined as always by Alice Cabot and Ned Lambert of Birch Run Financial. Gentlemen, always a pleasure to be with you both. Happy to uh, happy to be here as well, Jag. I can't believe uh, the year's almost halfway over and we're into our uh, now into our 5th year of podcasting, which we're we're very excited about. So we're we're happy that we, that you've been a part of this the entire time. It's certainly been a lot of fun, Jag, and um you know, as we kind of get into the summer and summer mode, you know, we thought today we talk a bit about, you know, what's going on with the Fed, but also um some common misnomers that investors tend to have. Absolutely. And I do have to say, guys, the feeling is mutual. I have learned so much in the four years talking to the two of you every month. So as Ed kind of alluded to, we have a two-part podcast today. In the first half, Ed's going to talk about whether or not you guys think the Fed has finished raising interest rates. And in the second half, Alex is going to debunk the sell in May and go away saying, as well as other market timing fallacies. So Ed, again, we'll start with you. Fed raised interest rates, another quarter point on May 3rd. Please tell me, are they finished raising rates? We think that the answer is possibly yes, <laughs> maybe likely yes, for a number of reasons. Um, if there are more increases coming, most economists think that they will not be very significant. So it does look like we're near the end of the interest rate hikes. At least that's how it looks. Now, it's always important to keep in mind that every time Jay Powell comes out and speaks, he says what we do will be, quote, data dependent. So it all depends on what happens with the economy and, and inflation, but it seems like they're getting towards the end. But first, you know, as Alex and I were preparing for this and, and what we were going to cover and how, we think it's important to kind of take stock of how far rates have actually increased over the past 14 months. So until March of 2022, the range for the Fed funds rate was between zero and 0.25%. So they were basically zero, mm -hmm. which is the lowest we've ever had in our country. Now, if you remember for a small period or a short period, rather, there were negative interest rates in a few countries in um, Europe, but it's very, very hard to wrap one's head around the concept of putting your money in the bank and actually paying for that, uh, for that privilege. <laughs> but back to the US. Interest rates are now 5%. The Fed funds rate is between 5 and 5.25%, which happens to be the highest in the country in the last 16 years. And there were certainly some concerns for a while when we had four consecutive uh, three-quarter percent increases about the pace of these Fed hikes. But fortunately, nothing really seemed to break in the financial system. And you know, that was a bit of a concern for a while as the magnitude of rate increases, quite frankly, have been staggering. Mm -hmm. You know, raising rates that much over a short period of time was essentially the equivalent of throwing a bucket of ice water on the economy. <laughs> you know, nothing was gradual, and it took a while to get used to a significant change in interest rates. And honestly, we're kind of still in the process of everybody getting used to higher rates. Agreed. And when you increase rates significantly, with the goal to tamp down inflation, what you're really doing is you're slowing the speed at which money flows through the financial system. Individuals kind of hesitate to borrow as freely, which reduces consumption. Uh, for example, when interest rates were very low, a lot of people were borrowing against home equity to fund home improvement projects and purchases. And that's certainly slowing a bit since rates are much higher. You Now you have to pay a a lot of interest to borrow money. So you might think twice about that, right? Sure. And 
The same thing goes for business spending. Companies are much more likely to hold off on capital expenditures and, and less likely to float bond issues when the cost of borrowing is much higher. You know, again, so consumers are less likely to borrow, businesses are less likely to borrow. Now, as a saver, now that you can earn a decent rate of interest on safer investments like treasury bonds and CDs, safe as long as you hold them until maturity, of course, people are more likely to save than spend. You know, money in the bank, if you look around, can actually earn a reasonable amount of interest for the first time essentially in 16 years. Last time the Fed funds rate was 5% was in the, sometime in 2007. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these higher interest rates increases people's propensity to save and reduces their propensity to spend. Again, slowing the flow of money. So at this point, you have money flowing through the system, but much more slowly than a year ago. And that's why economic growth is slowing. And inflation has come down now 12 consecutive months into like the mid 4% range. Around a year ago, it was close to 9%. So that's, that's significant improvement in the fight against inflation. But we're still pretty far from that ultimate target of 2%. So basically right now, you know, the Fed has us on a glide path with inflation that is trending downward, but not as quickly as they'd prefer but it is moving steadily in the right direction. And since interest rate changes have a lagging effect over time on both economic growth and inflation, most economists believe that the interest rate hikes that have already happened will likely continue to push inflation lower over time. And Jay Powell has said multiple times that the Fed would prefer that inflation would go down at a faster pace. Remember two years ago, you know, they kept using the term transitory yes. to explain inflation. It certainly wasn't transitory. It's taking a lot of work and a lot of time to get rid of it. But a lot of economists think that the Fed might have pushed as far as they can push without creating some real economic problems. And Powell has mentioned that he believes that bank lending standards are tightening which would help to you know, slow economic growth and inflation even further. And there was obviously a lot of pressure on mid-sized banks with what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank in March and more recently First Republic, which both had management issues, but there are other banks under some stress as well. So you know, that leads us to believe that there is actually a reasonable chance that the Fed is either finished raising interest rates now or that there may not be much more coming. Let me ask you this, because we've talked about this fine line that Powell and the Fed have to walk in previous episodes between slowing the economy, but not plunging us into a recession. Right. Is a recession coming? Well, that's a $64,000 question, isn't it? Or with inflation, it might be more. In the end, Jag, nobody knows for sure. According to the Wall Street banks, the Wall Street Journal keeps a poll of forecasters the average likelihood of recession in the next 12 months is about 65%, according to the composite of those projections. Okay. But individual banks and firms' projections are all over the place. So, for example, Goldman Sachs thinks there's only a 35% chance of recession. 
And randomly, based on the frequency of recession since the end of the Second World War, it's about 15% in any one year. So Goldman's essentially saying there's about you know, two to two and a half times the chance of recession as average. But it's not that high, right? Mm-hmm. Vanguard, as of a couple months ago, I haven't seen any updates from them since, they were at 90% chance of recession. Jeez. So these forecasters are all over the place. But fortunately, most of the economists feel that if there were to be a recession, it would likely be relatively mild given the low starting unemployment rate, which is really the lowest since the late 60s, -hmm. and the overall lack of labor supply in the country, meaning that a lot of displaced workers should hopefully be able to find some sort of replacement work if the Fed tightens a little bit too much. And certainly, the Fed could cut interest rates to stimulate growth whenever they would deem that necessary because they have a lot of room to cut interest rates now. And that was always a concern when interest rates were close to zero, that if the Fed had to do something to stimulate growth, there wasn't a whole lot they could do. Yeah. But you know, essentially what they've been doing is purposely creating this environment as if they're doing it in a laboratory to bring inflation down. So there's, there's a bit of a safety net there because they are creating this, if that makes sense, which is a lot different than 2008 when the financial crisis just spiraled out of control and 2020 with the COVID shutdown. This is a much, much different environment, but there's still, still definitely a reasonable chance of a recession. And I think it's also important to mention that if we cross whatever line in the sand there is into a recession, it doesn't mean the world turns on its head. That's right. Everything is relative. It's not that at this point we're not in a recession, at this point we are, and everything's gone crazy. It's just a matter of the measurement piece of it. There's been a dozen recessions in the United States since the end of the Second World World War. They are a normal thing. Like I said, by random chance, you have a 15% chance of a recession in any given year, you know, they're essentially defined by two consecutive quarters in which GDP contracts along with some sort of increase in economic pressure like the unemployment rate. But right now with the unemployment rate, like I mentioned a minute ago, well below the long-term average, it would take a relatively large increase in unemployment even to get to our long-term average. Got it. It's a really good timestamp, as we sit here on May 23rd, Ed. Let's turn over to you, Alex. Summer about to start. Your favorite stock market fallacy back for its annual elevation. Tell us about this sell in May and go away idea and why it doesn't work. There are so many of these great little one-liner expressions, and I would be remiss if I didn't follow on to what Ed said with one of my favorite economics jokes of all time. And you'll bear with me for one second. Sure. I am going to get to sell in May and go away and a couple others, but Ed's talking about recessions. And one of my favorite little one-liner jokes is that economists have successfully predicted nine of the last five recessions. (laughs) Remember that when you're watching the news and you're hearing somebody talk about an impending recession, recessions are predicted all the time. There's always somebody out there who says that there's a recession coming right around the corner. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. But broadly speaking, when it comes to projections and and prognosticators and predictions of this nature, they tend to be very unreliable. So don't take anybody's word as gospel when it comes to something like that. That said, the next three little things I'm going to talk about, the first of which being sell in May and go away, there is empirically valid data 
to point out that these truisms, quote unquote, are not in fact true at all. Okay. I'm going to start with sell in May and go away, and then I'm going to follow up with the January effect and then buy the rumor, sell the news, which I've always liked. So sell in May. So the hypothesis of sell in May is that over long periods of time, the returns are better from the months of October to May than they are vice versa. So if you sell all your securities in May and buy them back in October, you'll do better with your investments because the assets perform better throughout that time period. I looked back 30 years, and this is data that goes from 1979 to 2018. Uh, so, uh, excuse me, it was almost 40 years of data. Mm -hmm. uh, so look back 40 years, returns are actually better from the month of October to the month of May than they are from the month of May to the month of October. And that seems to be corroborating evidence. You say, well, you get a better rate of return if you sell in May and, and buy back in October because the returns are better from October to May. Yeah. And it's true, the returns are better, but the average returns from the months of May to October are still positive when we average everything out. So what this strategy essentially says is you are knowingly avoiding a positive expectation value. In other words, you are intentionally liquidating an asset that you have every expectation will produce a positive rate of return over a time period and then buying it back at the end of that time period. That is a recipe for missing out on gains, period, full stop. Will it always be this way? I don't know. Will there be the next 30 or 40 years that evidence proves that this actually works? Well, evidence might show that it does work over the next 30 years, but it doesn't necessarily mean it'll work over the next 30 because over the last 30 to 40, it has not worked. Some periods though, from the month of May to the month of October are so good that you would completely ruin your long-term average returns by missing them. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of uh, the year 2020, when the market rallied from March, uh, essentially till the end of the following year, 2021. If you had missed May, June, July, August, September in 2020, you missed out on a massive run-up in the market. Right. And that's a difficult thing to come back from. Now, of course, some periods are so bad, you'd make yourself look like an absolute genius for missing them. <laughs> but the trick is figuring out which years the strategy is going to work. And that, as we've said time and time again, is next to impossible because we firmly believe that nobody knows where the market is going in the short term. And we don't claim to, and we think the people who do claim to are just making an educated guess, but a guess nonetheless. So that's one reason we do not believe in the philosophy of sell in May and go away. Alex, this plays into something you've talked about a number of previous episodes, and that is timing the market. To time the market, you have to know exactly when to get in, exactly when to get out. Both those things have to be true. It's near impossible to do. And I think if you look at all these numbers, you could probably cherry pick the data to support whatever argument you want to make, but it doesn't hold true in the grand scheme of things. It really is amazing when you look at all the data we have access to. I don't know if I've ever told this story on the podcast before, but about 12 years ago, I had a, an intern working for us. He was brilliant, very, very smart kid, studying physics, and uh, he loved sifting through data. So I gave him access to a bunch of databases, and I told him, find me a pattern that works. Find me something that I can say, this is proof that you know XYZ makes the market do this. 
and he found some really obscure database of the number of cases of syphilis reported in the state of Nevada <laughs> that had like a perfect six-month early correlation to the Nikkei 225 index, the Japanese stock market. Um, <laughs> no, and obviously, there's no causation whatsoever between those two, but the correlation was almost perfect. And I put together this entire presentation just to show that you could cherry pick numbers and come up with a strategy that works if you're given an, a, a large enough data set. So this isn't quite as outlandish as that. But again, it's something that we can prove doesn't really work very effectively. Fair enough. The second one is the January effect. And that's a very simple thing to explain. It just goes, as goes the month of January, so goes the remainder of the year. So if January is positive, that means the rest of the year is going to be positive and vice versa. The way that you effectively execute this strategy is on December 31st of any given year, if you're invested, you sell out. And then on February 1st, you buy back in if January was positive or you stay in cash for the entire year if January was not positive. Jeez. So that's how you execute. Does that make sense? It makes sense the way you're explaining it, but it sounds insane. Yes, and it sounds insane for a couple of reasons. The first is this. I went back and evaluated the period from 1979 to 2018. I would have looked at more recent data, but this is research I did a while ago, and it actually does take quite a while to calculate this, so I, I, I wanted to have the data that I had. But for that period of time, from 1979 to 2018, the January effect worked for the S&P 500 27 times out of 40. Okay. So in other words, the, the January effect is correct about 70% of the time. But what does that mean? And the answer is not much. <laughs> and the reason is the same as the sell in May philosophy, is that if you willingly sacrifice a period that has a positive expectation value, you are going to not make as much money as you would otherwise. So I actually, I ran an analysis of an adherent to the January effect. If you had started in 1979 to the end of 2018, if you had executed the January effect trading strategy, so buying in on February 1st if January had been positive or staying in cash the entire year if January had been negative, that strategy produced a return per year for 40 years of 6.1%, which isn't terrible. Um, you avoided some bad years. You missed out on some good years, but 6.1% is a pretty decent rate of return. Yeah. This hypothetical investor had a friend who was is also a hypothetical investor <laughs> who was much lazier and he couldn't be bothered to do the research or look to see what January did. He just bought stocks in 1979 and held them to 2018. And both of these hypothetical investors invested $100,000 at the start. Our first investor got his 6.1% with the January effect. Our lazier investor did a little bit better. 8.6% per year. That's a 2.5% per year difference, mm -hmm. which sounds somewhat significant, but that it doesn't sound like life-changing, right? It's only 2, 2.5%. It's, it's enough to warrant discussion, but that shouldn't really make a huge difference, right? Well, over 40 years, 2.5% does make a huge difference because our January effect investor invested 100000 at 6.1 and ended up with $1.1 So we made a million dollars over that 40-year period in investing profits. The investor who was lazy and didn't execute the January effect strategy ends up with $2.8 
dollars. Whoa. That's the difference of 2.5% compounded for 40 years is, is an additional 1.7 million in this guy's portfolio. Just to recap, they both put in $100,000. The January effect investor ended up with 1.1 million. The quote unquote lazier investor ended up with 2.8 million. Wow. That is exactly right. And that is an, a slight oversimplification because there's one other factor that we haven't considered, and that is the tax consequences of this strategy as well as the sell in May and go away strategy. Mm -hmm. Both of these strategies require the wholesale liquidation of a portfolio at a given time in a short time span. That triggers, in many cases, a significant tax consequence. Ah. And because you're doing this once or twice a year, most of those gains are going to be short-term capital gains, which generally are taxed at a higher rate than long-term capital gains. Right. We're not even taking into consideration the tax consequences of, of executing this strategy. So in addition to the 2.5% lag in return over that 40-year period, you're also paying a lot of taxes along the way. And that eats into returns even more. I just ignored that for the purposes of calculating the percents. But that is another factor that you have to consider. Sure. So neither of those strategies works very well. The final one I'm going to talk about is buy the rumor, sell the news. Have you ever heard that one? No, it's new to me. That's one of my favorites. So buy the rumor, sell the news. It's been around for a long time. I, I probably heard it for the first time in the 2000s when I got into the industry, but I think it's been around for longer than that. And supposedly, investors can profit when the headlines are not conclusive, but are pointing towards something good happening. Rumors. And then when the actual good news breaks, then you sell your risk assets because the market's going to drop. You buy lots of risk assets leading up to the announcement of what everybody thinks is going to be good news, and you liquidate everything right before the news is released. As the hangover eventually wears off, market comes back down, and it seems like a relatively straightforward strategy. It does create the tax problem that's created by the sell in May as well as the January effect. Now, the problem with this strategy is a little bit more difficult to quantify because what constitutes good news and what constitutes a rumor and what constitutes, you know, when the news breaks. So there's, there's a little bit more ambiguity in there. It's totally subjective. It is. It's you trying to be the smartest person in the room and staying ahead of the crowd. I'm going to, there's a rumor, so I'm going to buy all this now and then I'm going to sell before everybody catches up to me. If I can see where that might not be such a great idea, Alex. And here's the thing. As with any weird strategy like this, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. A good example of uh, buying the rumor, sell the news is if the Federal Reserve is expected to cut interest rates that tends to stimulate economic growth. The market will rise and rise and rise right up until the announcement. Then they make the announcement, they cut rates, the market might pop a little bit and then it drops back down to where it probably should have been. So that does happen sometimes. We've witnessed it many times where we see news reports come out as expected and the market drops. Uh, it happened in 2013 with, I think it was, it was Operation Twist when they were doing the shifting around of treasury bonds in the Federal Reserve's portfolio. There was this huge news report saying that they were going to be doing this and, and uh, it would have this, this and that effect on the markets and everybody knew it was going to happen. The market was very enthusiastic. And as soon as they announced that it was happening, and I believe Janet Yellen was the, the uh, chair of the Federal Reserve at the time, as soon as it was, 
Well, was it Bernanke? I think it, I think it may have been Bernanke. And if, 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 it, if it was Bernanke or Yellen, I can't remember which one. But regardless, as soon as the announcement was made, the market fell by not a massive margin, but enough that it was significant for the day, at least. So that's an example of where it did work. But one bad decision, one mistake in a strategy like this does actually have the potential to cripple a long-term plan. Yeah. Imagine seeing a rumor or some sort of news report that Congress is about to pass the biggest stimulus bill in history in response to the COVID pandemic, (laughs) which, as you remember, actually happened in March of 2020. Yep. The headlines were indicating that this bill was in the works, that there was some struggle getting it through, but eventually there was consensus it was going to go through. The markets rebounded a little from their lows on the 23rd of March. Finally, the bill passed later that week. And March 24th, 5th, and 6th of 2020, the S&P 500 rose over 20% in three trading days after the news broke of the stimulus. Ah. So if you had been aggressively buying risk assets up until March 23rd, where the market bottomed, and then you sold everything at the end of the day in anticipation of that announcement coming out, you never got a better opportunity to get back in. Ever. Ah. And you missed out on 20% gain in three days in your equities. Jeez. And that type of mistake, while rare, because it is very uncommon for the market to move 20% in three trading days. I've never actually seen it happen apart from that. The market has moved over 20% in a single day once in 1987, but this type of swing is almost unheard of. It's rare, but if you had been trying to execute that strategy, this would have been a perfect example of buy the rumor, sell the news, but selling the news would have been catastrophic for someone's financial plan. Yeah. It is next to impossible to dig yourself out of a hole that deep, you know, without dramatically increasing your risk level or essentially betting on something to move very sharply and leveraging your your money some way. It's next to impossible to do that. The market remained volatile after that, but there was never a better point to get back in. Never. It all comes back down to this, is that there is no free lunch <laughs> in the investment world. If any of these tricks actually worked, it would be nice, but sadly they don't. The reason that none of these techniques work is that our capital market system is very transparent and liquid, which means if there is an opportunity to exploit some kind of advantage, there are already millions of people trying to exploit it. And the very fact that these people are trying to exploit this advantage so aggressively makes it impossible for anyone to exploit the advantage because the market normalizes in price almost instantly with so many participants. Right. That's the problem is that we love to think we have the inside track, that we have some knowledge that other people don't have, that we have the secret formula to maximizing profits in the capital markets. We don't. I don't think anybody does. You know, you look at some of the most successful investors of all time. You know, Warren Buffett comes to mind. Warren Buffett's investment philosophy is buy a stock that you understand and you like and hold on to it for 90 years. (laughs) That's not a get rich quick scheme. It isn't. 
But that's kind of what his philosophy is. I exaggerate a little bit saying 90 years, sure. but you get the point. And that is the point, is that investing long-term is investing long-term. You're not trying to move things in and out and try to time the market. It's just there are too many variables to be able to calculate it correctly. And I, and I like to think I'm pretty good at math. You are. But I can't solve an equation with 900 variables. There's just not a way you can do it when you only have like three equations using those 900 <laughs> variables. Well, you'd need 899 equations with 900 variables before you could actually solve for all of the variables. And it would be very challenging. So that's, that's kind of where we are, is that anytime you hear something like this, where you get a little one-liner, oh, you do this and you're going to beat the market, you're not. You're just not. You know? And, if, and if, you, if you find something like that and you're curious about it, but you don't know how to test it, call me. Send me an email. And I mean this, anybody listening, if you've heard something like this and you want someone to look at it, I love doing stuff like this. I find it just intellectually absolutely fascinating to evaluate questions like this. So if anybody who's listening today has, has some theory or hypothesis or, or idea that they want tested, shoot me an email. You, the contact information will be at the end of the show. It's in the show notes and uh, you can find it on our website too. I'll evaluate a strategy, send you some charts and graphs and give you a breakdown on it. I think this is fun as anything. Alex, why don't you give that content information while we're here? Sure. You can always find information about us on our website, which is birchrunfinancial.com, B-I-R-C-H-R-U-N financial.com. You can email us on our general box, which is info, I-N-F-O, at birchrunfinancial.com. Or you can call our office the old-fashioned way on the telephone, 484-395-2190. I say this every podcast. Please call us if you have questions. We love having conversations with people. Even if you're not a client, even if you don't have any money to invest, even if you just want some clarity on one thing, our door is always open, metaphorically speaking, and we're always happy to have that conversation. <laughs> Financial literacy is so important. And you've just explained in this podcast that we live in an on-demand world. People are looking for these get-rich-quick schemes. They typically don't work. It's tried and true investing the old school way, and these guys know how to do it. And as you heard Ed at the beginning of the podcast, they're always on top of what's going on in the markets and where things are headed. They're always keeping their eyes and ears out for you. So again, we thank you both for your time today. And as we get into our fifth year of this podcast. Thanks, Shag. Here's to number 50 coming up next month. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alice Cabot, not necessarily those of RJFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not report to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecast will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James does not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or a statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. The examples throughout this material are for illustrative purposes only. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with your professional. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure profit or protect against a loss. Keep in mind not all asset classes mentioned are suitable for all clients. Rebalancing a non-retirement account could be a taxable event that may increase your tax liability. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. The S&P 500 is an unmanaged index of 500 widely held stocks that is generally considered representative of the U.S. stock market. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc. Virtual Financial is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Virtual Financial located at 595 East Sweet Street Road, Suite 360, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, and can be reached at 484-395-2190. 